0: Hello, and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis of all the big talking points in football. Well, I'm Johnny McFarlane, the former host of The Transfer Window, and I am back to replace Mr. Duncan Castles, who's having a well-earned break. He's off tending to his butterflies. Or was that someone else, Ian?
1: (laughs) Sensational to have you back, Johnny. Uh, And I'd say, when you said former host, I would say you're always a present friend rather than former host.
0: (laughs) I'm like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I I was always here at The Overlook.
1: Red rum.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I, I... I'm delighted to be back. I can't wait to get stuck in, Ian. And where better to start than with a big, big bit of transfer news regarding, in my view, the best defender in Europe. Tell me more. Yeah, indeed,
1: Johnny. Um, Calder Koulibaly, Senegal international who plays currently at Napoli, has long uh, been a target for several clubs, not just in England, but also in Europe. Um It's my information that Koulibaly has informed Napoli president Aurelio de Laurentiis of his desire to leave the club in January. Um, Now, this has been an ongoing situation, but with the departure of Carlo Ancelotti, who he was very close to, uh, has brought the issue to a head. And Koulibaly is now seeking a move away from Serie A. And this has begun an auction process led by, funnily enough, his former boss Carlo Ancelotti at Everton, who sees weaknesses in the Everton back line. But probably just as interesting, especially given their current form at the back, is that Manchester United have made contact with Napoli regarding Koulibaly and the price which Napoli are asking. This tells us what two things. One, uh, Manchester United have decided finally that Lindelof and Maguire are probably not as dependable as Oli Gunnar Solskjaer would prefer. I think we saw that in the Watford game at the weekend when Maguire was once again beaten in an aerial challenge uh, which led up to the first goal. Uh, however fortunate or unfortunate it may have been, depending on your view of David De Gea. Interesting that is also that uh, Koulibaly's valuation is in excess of 60 five million euros so it would be a a substantial investment for either of the northwest clubs to make that bid and satisfy De Laurentiis who of course we know does not sell cheap however Koulibaly as you said Johnny and I think you're correct in your opinion is one of the most dependable and talented defenders currently playing in Europe if not the world and also I think it would be a great addition to either of those clubs now I've heard, although I can't confirm, that Arsenal have also made contact with Napoli through a third party regarding Koulibaly. Uh, And this comes on the back of their desire under Mikel Arteta, their new head coach, to strengthen their defence. And also the fact that, I think quite unexpectedly, Johnny, they've actually got some interest in Siad Kolasinic from Serie A. So you could see the possibility of Kolasinac being offered to Napoli in part exchange, plus cash. Although De Laurentiis prefers cash for Koulibaly, that's for sure, um, because he wants to strengthen his team and get them up the Serie A table into the Champions League places, where, of course, they've been for the last three to four years. So what we have is a situation where one of Europe's most wanted players is, funnily enough, in an auction and a race almost to, to get him. January, as we know, is a very difficult time to buy any player uh, because uh, partly the inflation and fees, uh, p- obviously clubs who want to buy are more desperate to get players in at that time of the year, and so therefore the selling club is able to exploit their desperation. However, I'm told by colleagues and by contacts in Italy that the Bali situation, because it's been ongoing for probably just about a year now, could be resolved this January, and there's certainly concrete interest from both Manchester United and Everton.
0: Okay, positives and negatives on Koulibaly, Ian. Now, we've got a guy who is a physical monster, extremely strong, extremely quick, great in the air, very good at one-on-one defending, doesn't make a lot of mistakes. But on the negative side, he is 29 in June, and we're talking about a mega deal. So for Everton potentially to be sinking 60, 70, 80 with Dino De De, De Lorientes. You never know when it's going to maybe be 90 or 100 million in this transfer. He's going to be a player that you're never going to really see a return on that, are you? Very true. Um,
1: Very true, Johnny. And any player I would suggest over the age of 28, given that the average contract awarded to players when they join a club in order to protect the club's investment is around four years. Sure, some players will play beyond 32 and can play very well, and there have been lots of high-profile examples of that. But effectively, you're right. You're buying a depreciating asset, any player over 28. Um, Therefore, whatever you pay, you're not going to get a sell-on value for the player, unless, of course, you sell them in a year, which that's obviously not the idea when you buy them. Um, In Koulibaly's case, Koulibaly, uh, for the pros that you mentioned, is the... Uh, equivalent of a 30-goal-a-season striker. He will buy you 15, maybe even 20 points saved because he's that good. Now, as we know, when a new manager, especially someone that's high profile and successful in his career as Carlo Ancelotti comes in, then the club tends to give him a wee present when he arrives. He gets a present, he gets the player he wants, uh, the club club's... Um, Recruitment department won't debate or indeed uh, try and challenge the the new manager's opinion on a player. And even the club's directors who would say just what you said, Johnny, about investing that amount of money in a guy who's six months away from being 29. They tend to say, "Okay, uh, we trust your judgment, Carlo Ancelotti. Uh, We'll take him because he, let's face it, as well as a defender, that's the prime of your career in terms of experience, applying that experience. He's not got a, uh, any record of bad injuries. He's, he's been a player who's been relatively injury-free during his career. So it's not really a risk. I would say it's an investment rather than a risk. I think Everton's difficulty is that despite their current problems, Manchester United is obviously a big draw for any player playing, um, even if you know they're a little bit on their uppers right now. Uh, and also Manchester United would probably be able to offer him a bigger contract um, in terms of both investment and fee and four years of salary. Uh, now, this, of course, all depends on Ed Woodward, who's, as we know, and Duncan will always remind us, uh, his record, the transfer window, is not great. But Valley, I think, is as close to a sure thing as you get. Uh, so discarding the idea of bad luck in terms of injury, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, if United were to invest, they would get a leader on the, in the defence, which they currently don't have. They thought they were getting that in Harry Maguire. They paid £85 million pounds for him. Maguire clearly, as we've seen already in his first season, is not able to marshal the defence. He doesn't have the authority to command his fellow players. And he is making individual errors himself. All of which tell us that there's no leadership at the back at Manchester United. They need that desperately. And Koulibaly could certainly fulfil that role.
0: Yes, and uh, I mean, of of course, it's Manchester United, so um, we can probably assume that it won't happen and he'll be heading to Everton. But in terms of what it means for Everton, Ian, the transfer that jumps out at me would be Rabinho Rubin, uh, to Manchester City. In terms of if this was to be pulled off, what it would mean for bringing other players into the club it's uh, it's the first of the dominoes to fall it's the, it would be a, a real statement of intent from from uh, the owners of that club wouldn't
1: it yeah, yeah that's correct Johnny uh, that, that catalyst effect that um, you're describing I remember covering the, the, um, the kind of uh, ironic and also kind of laughable things that came out uh, because if you remember, Rubinho gave a press conference against Real Madrid's wishes where he cried to the media saying (laughs) he needs to get out I need to leave. And then his agent was woken up from his sleep in his uh, house in Rio de Janeiro to send a signed fax. Uh, And we're talking about fax now. That's how long ago, of course, Rubinho was transferred uh, to Manchester City, saying that the transfer was authorised. Turns out Rubinho thought he was going to Manchester United. Not Manchester City. He was, he was just told Manchester. And I interviewed him about four months after he arrived um, in, in England. And he relayed that story to me and said that he was only told Manchester. And he only knew Manchester United. He didn't know Manchester City. Now, it was a record transfer in England at the time. But what was, I guess, the positive of that was <clears throat> that in his first season, Robinho played really well and had, and had a very positive effect on Manchester City. And you're right. It made people realise that Manchester City were a big player in the transfer market. And of course, since then, they've gone on to become an even bigger player. Um, with Everton, they spent 58 million on Richarlison, £50 million on on um, Sigurdsson, and without much product. Um, Ancelotti is someone who is regarded as a very good man-manager, rather than being a brilliant coach. But I do think that knowing him well, and knowing his methods well, He's the kind of guy who will get the best out of the players he's got there um, by just his emotional intelligence, interpreting uh, the way his players are responding, either to um, training or tactical briefings, et cetera, et cetera. His son, David, is a very, very well-respected coach at the age of 30. And, of course, he's got Duncan Ferguson as a motivator and someone who will basically scare the bejesus out of anyone who's not staying in line. So I think it's a good um, combination for Everton. And as you say, it's a statement signing um, to break their uh, own transfer record by some way if they can get Koulibaly. And of course, Koulibaly is a very good relationship with Ancelotti. So let's just say, um, watch the space. And of course, we will deliver you the news before it becomes news.
0: Well, that's one to keep an eye on then. And another potentially to keep an eye on is Chelsea's chase for Wilfred Zaha. Ian, this one's been rumbling on for quite a while. What's the latest?
1: It's an odd one, Johnny. Uh, odd one in terms of circumstances. Um, one, the player has had a, a, a split, which, well, I say a split. It's, it's not um, being confirmed yet with his agent um, because he was disappointed in the fact he didn't get a move last summer, and that move was to Arsenal. That's the club he supported as a kid. That's where he wanted to go. And Arsenal, of course, then went and spent £75 million on Nicola Pepe. Now, My information is they could have had Wilfred Zaha for that money, but of course they were on the never-never. They couldn't afford to play 75 million up front, which is what Palace wanted for Zaha. So they paid instead five installments over the five years of Pepe's contract to Lille instead. Now, Zaha was very miffed about that, felt like he had been played a little bit, um, promised or over-promised what could be achieved and what couldn't. So, what the situation is now? Steve Parish, the chairman of Crystal Palace, doesn't need to sell. Uh, they've got money. They had American investment in the club just over a year ago, and they, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they, um, they can afford to hold out and sit tight until they get their valuation met. And that valuation, I can tell you, is ninety million pounds. And they're basing that on the fact that English players. Have all like top tier English players have all been fetching prices in the region of 60 or indeed of one bissaka where they held it for 50 million pounds to go to uh, Manchester United um, up to 100 million pounds. Therefore, Paris says, and that I'm not going to sell for less than 90 million. I think that valuation is unrealistic. Um, as we've already spoken about earlier in the pod, this player is 28. So, again, you're buying a depreciating asset. As good as he is, um, can he get better? Can he improve a club like Chelsea? I'm not sure. <clears throat> At the moment, um, most of Crystal Palace's possession is deferred to Wilfred Zaha. He will find that very different if he move to Stamford Bridge because he's got a lot of talented, ball-playing uh, individuals around him. You've got Mason Mount, who's made a big impression, uh, uh, Hudson Odoi, the same Christian Pulisic, the same even Rhys James who's an, an amazing right wing back, the same William scored two goals against Tottenham last weekend the same I'm not sure Zaha <clears throat> fits the template at Chelsea he's older than the young players that Frank Lampard has blooded and put his trust into uh, he is used to being the pig fish in a small pond He will find it, I think, difficult, therefore, to adjust to a club like Chelsea where he'll be made to earn his place rather than simply assume his name is on the team sheet every single game. And also, I'm not sure that Frank Lampard is convinced by Zaha as a crucial element to um, the uh, augmenting of what is a very talented squad right now. Put it in the context of results. Um, Chelsea have lost four of the last Premier League games. Big, big result at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium um, on Sunday. Uh, Big uh, tactical win for Lampard and Jodie Morris as coaches, um, who reverted to three at the back, made two changes, pushed Tottenham into a situation whereby their full-backs were drawn inside towards central defence, allowing space on double overlap on both flanks. And you saw how well that worked. And Tottenham were exposed and Mourinho had no answer. Now, as I said, that was only their second win in six games. So you can't say that, oh, the slump is over. But at the same time, I think it was a big, big win in terms of Lampard. His self-confidence as a young coach, Jodie Morris as well, and a young team who went to Tottenham, got themselves in a battle, uh, which we'll talk about later with regards to red cards and challenges. And stood up to it. They were not intimidated and they played well and they they deserved to win that game. I don't think Zaha's a good fit for Chelsea. I think Zaha uh, is desperate to get into Champions League football. You can understand that. He's 28. He's never played it. He spent a wasteful time uh, when he was bought by Manchester United as a younger player. And Manchester United do have an interest in him still. Uh, Arsenal, I think, don't have either the money nor the... um, a desire to sign him I think his options are limited I think Steve Parish's valuation of £90 million is going to limit them further so it will be very interesting to see how this one goes because as we both know Johnny if a player wants to go and he wants to go enough he will agitate to leave which could force a club in a situation where they have to accept a lower, a lower valuation or a lower upfront price plus add-ons
0: yeah, yeah, this is one of these transfers that uh, makes you uh, smile at the idiosyncrasies of the English transfer market. We're talking about Kaladu Koulibaly there. And without going on and on to the listeners about how much I love that player, you're talking about a guy who is one of, if not the elite players in his position. Uh, and then you've got Wilfred Zaha for 20 or £30 million pounds more, who wouldn't even probably be in the top 50 players in his position in world football. But he's English and therefore he's being priced at 90 million. Uh, There seems to be a disconnect there.
1: Well, just let's look at the situation, which is a similar one, although with a much younger player. Jadon Sancho, Borussia Dortmund. Michael Zop, Dortmund's sport director, has been very clear that if an English club, and let's be clear on this, an English club want to buy Jadon Sancho, the price is 120 million euros. They know they can't get under €20 million Euros anywhere else. Not in Spain, not in Italy, not in France, not in Germany. Uh, to Bayern Munich, for instance, who we're obviously Bayern are looking at um, and very close to saying Leroy Zani from Manchester City, as we have reported repeatedly on the podcast in the last year. Now, to me, I've watched Sancho play. Uh, I'm sure you have as well. I know you watch a lot of European football, Johnny. And he, t- he is a, a good player. But he doesn't stand out. He is not a player of the class of Messi, Ronaldo. And I know that's like hitting the bar very high, yeah? But to me, he's not as good as Bernardo Silva or even Leroy Zane, et cetera, et cetera. Nowhere near. Exactly. But this is the inflation. This is the madness of the English Premier League because they have this huge cash slush fund, mainly provided by broadcasting rights. As we know, every time an agent sells a a player into a Premier League club, and by the way, we're not just talking the elite clubs, we're not talking top six here, we're talking even right down the table, West Ham United, Brighton Hove Albion, um, Watford FC, they get charged between 25 and 40% more than you'd have to pay uh, for that player if you were a club elsewhere in Europe. And that's because of this culture of excess, and overinflation in the market, you've got the money, you want the player, well, you're going to have to spend the money, is basically the message that comes out. Now, Dortmund were very savvy when they took Sancho from Manchester City in the way that they got him and for the price that they got him at. But Sancho's, for me, his, um, his reputation, certainly in the last six to eight months, is based purely on his performances for England, because he's been poor in a Borussia Dortmund team that's struggling in the Bundesliga. And he is a confidence player. Some people describe him as a flat-track bully. I'm not convinced that that's accurate. I, I, don't, I wouldn't go that far. I think he's got a lot of talent, but what he needs is good coaching. And he needs that in order to make sure that he progresses uh, and finds the potential that he clearly has as well to develop into a very, very good player. At the moment, I think he is, yeah, look, he's certainly top 10 Premier League, but he's nowhere near 120 million euros. That's just madness. However, I, I also don't think there's anyone in England right now who's willing to pay that for him, whether it's City, United, uh, Liverpool, all of these teams that are uh, all been um, linked with Sancho, mm. mainly through his agent, certainly not from the clubs themselves. Because I think, from my reading of the situation, from speaking to scouts, recruitment staff, and um, administrators at the top English clubs about Sancho, they all have their reservations. And they certainly wouldn't pay that amount of money. So you rightly say that Zaha at 90 and Sancho at 120, it's just way overpriced. And you'd have to be either blind, stupid or extremely desperate to pay those prices. However, we know that Premier League clubs can often beat all three. So we can't rule it out.
0: I think we both like Sancho as a player and I just thought I'd have a wee look at his stats for the season and to be fair Ian, they are quite impressive 24 appearances, 12 goals and 13 assists so 25 big impacts on a game in 24 games Fair
1: play Johnny, I I wasn't aware of those stats Um, I was aware of the fact that he's had three different disciplinary issues with Dortmund two for missing training and one for turning up late for a team meeting Uh, There's been criticism of him in the German media. But if you're producing stats like that in a team which are underperforming, then, yeah, you have to say, fair play, that that may be something um, which clubs will take into account with the price tag. Although I still don't think
0: the price matches his value, his actual real value. Ian, talking of teams and people and things that are underperforming, what am I going to bring up now? (laughs) Goalkeepers? Not Glasgow Celtic but <laughs> no that would be that would be wrong <laughs> um, much to Merry Christmas to grin. Not, not mine not mine um, we are going to talk of course now about Manchester United Ian Watford to Manchester United nil. Troy Deeney scores his first goal in nine months and uh, David David De Gea has something of a nightmare just how bad do things have to get at Manchester United <sighs> Before the board, have a wee look at Ole or Sochar and think to themselves, perhaps this just isn't going to work out.
1: Johnny, as all our um, regular listeners know, that, you know, it, our, our, our great friend Dr Duncan Castles doesn't need any second invitation uh, to um, analyse Manchester United and their form under uh, the Precious One, as he likes to refer to him. Um, I watched uh, the, the game um, at Vicarage Road, and I was astonished by the inertness of the Manchester United team from 1 to 11. Um, Even Solskjaer himself described his team's performance as being like a testimonial. Now, two things struck me about that. One is that um, he says that and says it with a smile as if, oh, ha, 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 isn't it funny? that my players are completely underperforming uh, in every position and failing uh, to even apply a contest to a team who's bottom of the Premier League. If I'm a Manchester United fan, which I'm not, I'd be livid at Solskjaer's response to being questioned about the performance of the team and saying, we played like a testimonial. Uh, that's, That's the first thing. But you're right, the second thing is the the wider issue here. And that is, yeah, how bad does it have to get at Manchester United? Before, someone realises that this is a project which is flawed and not working. Their points total now is the worst in three decades. They're four points worse off than they were this time last season after 18 games. So we're halfway through the season. Let me just give you some stats here. And these are, these are damning for a particular reason, yeah? Manchester this season so far in 18 games have lost to Crystal Palace, West Ham, Newcastle United, Bournemouth and now Watford. So they've dropped 15 points against teams in the bottom half of the table. They've drawn against Wolves, Southampton, Arsenal, Sheffield United, Aston Villa and Everton. So that's 12 points gained, 12 points dropped against, again, teams largely, apart from Arsenal, in the bottom half of the table, and two who have been newly promoted. They have won games, and this is the irony, against Chelsea, Leicester, Norwich, uh, Brighton, Spurs and Manchester City, 18 points gained. So therefore, what their points total has come from those wins and draws. This is a team who you have to say is dysfunctional. They play better against the better teams because they've only got a plan A. They play counter-attacking football against a low block. And when they do that, they get space in behind and they score goals. And we saw that more, most devastatingly in the two wins in four days against um, Spurs and Manchester City, which, of course, was only 10 days ago. But then they go to Everton and draw and then they go to Watford and lose.
0: Now... A team that doesn't yeah, yeah, score. Yeah. Let, let me jump in here. Let me jump in here. Go right. on. I, sorry to interrupt you in mid-flow, but I've got no, a go point. I'm going, to, I'm going to make it firmly. Isn't there an argument to say that they've actually got it the right way around? If you can beat Manchester City in Spurs, then surely you're on a good road. You've got that really uh, quick att- counter-attacking transition football sorted against the big teams. Now what you actually need to do is do the easy part get players good enough to break down that low block, uh, creative players, have another plan. Surely that's the easier part. Do, do you understand what, what I, I, I'm saying? I take your
1: point, Johnny. No, I take your point. But but my, my, my reply would be, is it the easier part? Because we saw the top coaches in this league repeatedly moan, complain when they don't get results against teams who are lesser than them because they parked the bus. Now, to be champions of the Premier League, you have to win against everyone, not just the top six. And you, you say, have they got it the right way around? Well, really, is it not the cart before the horse? Should Manchester United be pummeling um, Palace, West Ham, Newcastle, Bournemouth and Watford, and then taking their A game into games against the likes of Manchester City, Tottenham and Chelsea, and applying that properly, the way that Liverpool have this season, one one draw and 17 wins. Uh, sorry, sorry. one drawn, 16 wins, because they're a uh, game behind now. That's the, the form of champions, as it was in Manchester City in the past two years as well. So <clears throat> I don't buy the, um, the Manchester United propaganda of Ollie at the wheel, we're on the right road, because he's getting things correct and everything else, because of like four or five decent results against good teams, where those good teams play into their hands because of their strengths. Now remember, what I said at the beginning of this conversation was, there's a plan A but no plan B. They need a plan B. They need a game breaker or they need a tactic which allows them to break down teams that play 4-5-1 against them, as Watford did. And it's not just playing 4-5-1. That's a fairly basic tactic for Watford to play against any top six team. It's Watford had more desire, more hunger to get to the ball, to block every single uh, United player, to close them down, close down the space, not allow them to make passes. It was only lateral in the game um, when, <clears throat> for instance, Pogba got the opportunity to uh, make that long-range pass to Greenwood where he hit the ball over the bar. These statistics, or the, not statistics, these results are not accidental. These are facts. This is a team that performs well in games against Chelsea, Leicester, Spurs and City and poorly against Palace, West Ham, Newcastle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as I've made the point. Now, if you get any ambition, potential towards credibly challenging for the Premier League title, then you need to beat all the bottom teams. And then, as we've seen in the last five years, you can afford the odd drop point or even the odd loss to one of your main rivals because you're doing your job properly. It's like you know, someone who's working their way up from the bottom You've got to take care of all the basic things day, day in, day out. Make sure they're all done properly. And then when it comes to the challenging parts of your job, then you perform beyond your expectation and you find that you're rewarded for that. <clears throat> and now, that's why I say, what do Manchester, how bad does it have to get for Manchester United when you lose to the bottom club 2-0? You perform as badly as they did for someone to say, we need a change. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that sacking Solskjaer is the answer. Um, when I say change, I mean radical change. It means <clears throat> buying Koulibaly, buying Erling Haaland, as we've reported in the podcast, to get you more goals and more dependability in terms of your chance, goal chance conversion rate. Um, but do it. Don't stand still and hope somehow that things are going to get better because they're not. And I've never known a club as big as Manchester United to um, be so stoic in their support of a project which is clearly failing on several different fronts and not performing despite the investment um, and the faith put in the people who are in charge of the football department. They need to do something. So they've got a choice. Uh, The windows opens, as we know, in just over a week's time. Support Solskjaer. And by that, I mean, don't make decisions that uh, Marcel Booth or Ed Woodward want in terms of players coming in. Don't do that. Ask Michael Carrick. Ask Solskjaer. And say, what is it that's absolutely integral to what you need in the team to improve results? And we will back you. And then, of course, we can judge you. Because if it doesn't work, then you're not the person for the job. Or alternatively, sack the manager and his staff, employ someone like Pochettino, who we know they've had an ongoing, very, very um, deep interest in employing, and ask him what he needs in the transfer market and how he will turn Manchester United around. But do something. Don't stand by and watch this car crash any longer.
0: Well, one other element that uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer will have to look at, I think, is uh, the form of David De Gea. I mentioned it in my intro to this segment, Ian. It was an astonishing mistake. And let's be honest, for quite a while, De Gea has looked like a man who's relatively diminished from the figure that two years ago was undoubtedly the, the best goalkeeper in the world. What's happening there? Johnny, It. I don't know David De Gea. I speak to people who
1: at Manchester United who train with him, who coach him. They don't know either. There is a, a real sort of big kind of everyone sort of you know putting their fist under their chin and saying, what the hell? I mean, Sunday's was probably the worst that we've seen. But since August 2018, De Gea has been directly responsible from his own mistake for six goals, which is the highest in the Premier League. So that's 18 months now. Now, I will say that Bernd Leno has the same amount of mistakes contributing to goals, so it's not just De Gea. But De Gea, <clears throat> before Leno even signed for Arsenal, was by far and away the best and most consistent goalkeeper in England. There was no doubt about that. Now, we had all the... Um, speculation and uh, consideration and uh, uncertainty over his future at Manchester United and contract negotiations and everything else. And a lot of people said, well, that's distracting him. And for a time, he lost his place in the Spain national team as well. So then he signs a contract, which makes him the best paid player at the club, Uh, puts everything behind him. And you think to yourself, Right, okay. Now that's done, then he'll be back to the guy who won six consecutive player of the year, fans player of the year, Manchester United um, accolades. Um, and also he won uh, the club and the players player as well in that time. In fact, I think it was eight in a row in terms of the players player, which says a lot of Manchester United as well, but that's another story. Now, that was inexplicable, what happened at Vicarage Road, because it's, it's such a basic thing. And you can say, uh, "Was he incited, uh, the ball went into the ground before it bounced up, It was spinning?" You can try and make excuses, but for a goalkeeper of David Gea's reputation, stature and ability, it's unforgivable. Absolutely. Unforgivable. It was a fault.
0: It was, it was a fault in Technikian because it wasn't one of those situations where the ball spins out of his hands. He mistimed the way he moved his hands forwards to grab the ball. And that speaks to something a little bit more intrinsically problematic for me because a lot of these situations when you're a goalkeeper, I used to be a goalkeeper, it'll be something to do with the weather, the, the wet, the way the ball spins, as you say. But this to me was a little bit more worrying because he just mistimed it completely. And it was such a simple situation.
1: Well, I've spoken, being your... too harsh? No, no, I've spoken to some of your teammates and they said you would definitely have made that save. Um, no, absolutely. Even uh, now, uh, even now, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Even after a couple of pints and a couple of burgers, you would still have made that save. But for De Gea, <laughs> for De Gea, <clears throat> as I said, it's unforgivable. You, I mean, even if he's lost focus for half a second, the ball's not coming at any speed. He's got a reflex action um, capability uh, to save that ball of up to maybe 0.75 of a second, when it leaves the boot of SAR, bounces it in the ground and comes to him, there should be no, there's no excuse whatsoever for the fact that he did not block it. Uh, he should have caught it, but I'm saying even just block it and put it for a corner or whatever. And he failed to do even that, which is the very, very basic part of a goalkeeper's responsibility. Now, I've been in situations where I've spoken to players who have low on confidence Are coming back from injury, and who are mentally feeling unprepared to be at their best in a game, but they go out and play anyway. As I said, I don't know David De Gea. I don't know if there's something going on in his life that caused him to produce that absolute howler. But it's something which has to be addressed at Manchester United, and it's you know it's maybe the case he needs some competition behind him. He needs a player good enough to replace him in order that he feels the pressure to be always at his best. Because at the moment, you could argue he's sitting pretty. He's highest paid player at the club. He's, you know, he will, you know, his contract and the rest of his life is basically sorted for him by having signed that new deal. And maybe he's just taking his foot off the gas. And he just, you know, he didn't go into that game with full concentration and motivation. And I'm not saying, you know, that he's... uh, in any way uh, unreliable for that. What I'm saying is that, given those circumstances, it's not a mistake you expect someone like De here to make. And Solskjaer, you know, he kind of laughed off a little bit as well. But again, I go back to the people that are paying to travel, whatever, 300 miles to Vicarage Road um, to watch that game and then see their goalkeeper chucked one in, and then their most expensive fullback, Juan Basaka, scythe down um, a player in order to concede a penalty four minutes later, which means that they've got that Johnny back home, having lost to the bottom team in the league, and as I said, with the worst points total in three decades after 18 games uh, in Manchester United's history. Um, and all, unfortunately, and we see a lot on social media, and of course, At the Transfer Window podcast, we receive a lot on our timelines as well. There's a lot of Manchester United fans out there who feel like their um, arguments, their protests, their um, voice is not being heard by Ed Woodward and the Glazers with regards to team's performance, with regards to the club's performance and transfer market, and with regard to what they see as the um, ownership of the club betraying the club's traditions in terms of being competitive for big titles. Now, we thought they turned a corner after those back-to-back wins over Spurs and Manchester City. And yet, what we see is a draw at Everton, a defeat by Watford. So they're going, basically returning uh, to the kind of form they were showing in the first 10 games of the season. As I said, something's got to give. And they have an opportunity now in uh, the transfer window in January to either back their manager and give him what he needs or sack the manager, bring someone else in and give him what he needs.
0: Well, one thing Manchester United are not involved in is the title race and we saw some interesting developments at the weekend when Manchester City beat Leicester 3-1. That gave them a bit of an advantage in terms of adding some points to their total and brought them within a point of Brendan Rodgers' men in third place. Ian, is this a glimmer a sliver of hope for Pep Guardiola that perhaps Liverpool can indeed be caught. You know,
1: Johnny. Two weeks ago, I don't think it had been said this sentence, but yes, I think it is. Um, we've trademarked as Liverpool's title to lose on the put transfer in the podcast, and that causes <laughs> a lot of um, mirth and and glee, depending who you support, um, and it still is. Because obviously they've now got a game in hand anyway. And of course, Leicester City were the closest challengers who've now been picked back, picked back by three points by Manchester City. What I would point to um, in terms of um, what may have changed in the last three days is that Manchester City were absolutely irresistible um, against Leicester. They went a goal down to a brilliant Jimmy Vardy goal, absolutely
0: sensational. And he's having- I still don't know how he flicked that over the keeper, Ian. He, he got well. He, you know no what? idea how he was able. Watch
1: to. it, Johnny. He gets. He got a lovely little bounce. The ball just bounces off the turf, allowing him just to flick it. So you didn't have to lift it over the keeper like Lingard tried uh, against Watford. He actually got the benefit of a lovely little bounce, which allowed him just to do it. But do you know what? That's still a skill in itself, and, and Vardy's got it. You know, he was three times in, and if you watch all three times, it's the outside of the right foot pass, either by. Um, Harvey, uh, is it Woods? Not Woods. Barnes, Harvey Barnes, and then James Madison. Um, But City didn't just show their mettle. They showed their desire, which has been lacking, I think, in recent games. Um, They had a difficult week, I think. They lost Arteta to Arsenal, someone was very well liked and respected in the dressing room. But they came back and they scored two goals in space, I think, five or six minutes. De Bruyne was absolutely incredible. He's a he's a monster as well. He's like the smaller version um, of Adama Traore <laughs> without the biceps. <laughs> he just forces his way through defences and people in an amazing way. And he was obviously the key, uh, I think, to, to the comeback. Now, I said two reasons why my, my sentence uh, that I uttered uh, seems a little bit uh, incredible to me. The other is Liverpool have went to Dubai, played two games, two very different games as well, and obviously extra time as well uh, against Flamengo in the World Club Championship, and played against a team who were in their face, physical, desperate to win, um, a team that also tactically they're not used to dealing with, a South American team, and credit to Liverpool for the fact that they came through and won that trophy. But the emotional and physical energy sapping doing the, the trip, the, and also the, the occasion, playing the occasion as well itself, before coming back to face Leicester City on Boxing Day, and Leicester City who, by the way, will be not be cowed by that defeat at the Etihad. They will be motivated, and uh, they'll be up for playing against Liverpool. And I think you know Liverpool have obviously got. The kind of schedule of fixtures which no one likes, and and City you can't say uh, have anything better. In fact, they played two games in 48 hours, but I still think that there's a resurgence about City. I'd remember they've got their two best players to come back in Aguero and Laporte, albeit you know we don't know when they'll return yet. Um, Whereas Liverpool have been playing effectively the same 15 16 players, let's take the league cup out of this because clearly that was you know a very distinctive aberration, if you like, in terms of the team that played that night against Aston Villa. Um, but what they have um, is uh, an opportunity now just to put a bit of pressure, a bit of pressure on Liverpool, which will test them and their resolve to win this title because there's no doubt that Liverpool players, manager, club, are under this almost un bearable weight of expectation to win the Premier League title this season they have borne it incredibly well so far but every club and you look through um, the records every club has a down moment in a season it might only be two weeks or it could be three, four it might only be two games but they will drop points I, and I'll, I'll happily you know, put my neck on the line there and say Liverpool will drop points in the next four, six weeks. And that'll be because of fatigue, it be because of the expectation, it be because they've just, you know, they can't possibly pre- perform on the same level that they have been for so long now. Um, and that will give City hope as well. Now, I still think it's Liverpool's title to lose, trademarked. I still think it's Liverpool, t- Liverpool win, win, will win the title as well. However, maybe, just maybe, a little bit of um, spark, uh, an injection of um, expectation, was put back into the title race last weekend by Manchester City's win over Leicester because they were that good.
0: Ian, you know that I have a little soft spot for Liverpool, despite the the, uh, the reservations. Only, that only because I have you wanted it on
1: the Anfield wrap, and I'm never even invited.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes without saying, and that is true. Um, but at the same time, it's remarkable, isn't it, what Jurgen Klopp's done there? I mean, famously, Alex Ferguson said that he wanted to knock Liverpool off their effing perch. But now it's, it's Liverpool to knock off, knock off that, that top spot. And when you consider where they were five years ago, it's quite astonishing that they're even in this situation, to be fair, isn't it?
1: Um, kind of. I'd say this, Johnny. You know, things things in football sometimes happen by good fortune. But mostly, they happen by good planning and design. And what I've seen in Liverpool in the last five years under Klopp is a club who went one way under the new manager um, in terms of investment in players and sale of players as well, for that matter, in terms of Coutinho, etc. It didn't work in terms of a return of trophies and then they changed philosophy they, they've done something which most other Premier League clubs, certainly not the top six, have done and that is they've targeted their player well in advance, they've gotten into negotiations with both the clubs and with the player and his agent and his family, uh, examples being Naby Keita uh, recently, most recently uh, Mina, Mo- uh, uh, Mina it's not Moto is it it's um, Minamino, Amino uh, of uh, Red Bull Salzburg who has been a, who will be an absolute bargain at 7.25 million pounds
0: yes incredible
1: but they have they've done that they, they've done everything off the radar out of the media you know no one's talking and they have succeeded in bringing in very influential players Virgil van Dijk was probably the best example that was more of a public negotiation than it might have been Um but they've done it brilliantly, um, and Klopp's brought through obviously players uh, like Alexander Arnold, and also um, made Andy Robertson one of the top left backs in Europe as well with his with his coaching skills. Um, adding the fact they've got James Milner, of course, who is absolutely you know invincible uh, and is the key, He's the key to everything of success as far as Liverpool's concerned in my eyes, and um, so yeah, they've, they've, what they've done is by design. Uh, and it's now it's been a long time. You know they've had to wait. Uh, they came very close under Brendan Rodgers to winning a Premier League title. You could argue within three games, um, and it's taken Klopp longer. Than it took Brendan Rodgers to get to the the cusp of winning a Premier League title, but they've won the Champions League in that time. Uh, and so, uh, it, yes, it is remarkable in terms of what they've achieved. But I do think, as I said, there's been a lot of planning. A lot of hard work behind the scenes and a lot of, um, I think, belief in Jurgen Klopp, which has obviously uh, been vindicated in the results and in the performances because they're about what well, far away the best team in England right now and probably the best team in Europe.
0: Indeed. Now we're going to move on to one of my favourite segments, the Heroes and Villains round. Ian, I'm going to go first. I'm just going to, just going to take this drill by the horns. as a as as returning
1: hero of the transfer <laughs> of the Podcast, I would not dare
0: to go first before you. So you, please, you can, uh, I think you're going for hero, aren't you? Is that correct? I am, I am. My hero is Big Dunk, Duncan Ferguson. A man I know reasonably well, uh, one of the first games I ever attended as a young man. He scored the winner, Dundee United against Dunfermline semi-final of the Scottish Cup, I believe 1990-ish. And he was just a young kid at that point, but it was clear that he was going to be a player of some standing. Unfortunately, I think injury meant that he never quite fulfilled his potential, but even at Everton, um, when he was on top of his game, he was pretty much unstoppable. And I always loved him as a player. He obviously went to Rangers, it didn't work out. Um... But at Everton, he just had that sense of being a real club man, a, a guy who loved to play for the jersey, uh, even though he was he had his injury struggles. I've always, you know, kept a, a, a flame burning in my heart for for Mister Ferguson, and and that was uh, partly because of his off the field antics. You know, it was that famous incident with the two burglars just added to his legend. The incredible. Um, video on YouTube of Paul Untz sort of squaring up to him and I'm just grabbing him with one hand and throwing him away as if he was just a an empty crisp packet. You know, Big Dunk is a character to be admired in every way and I thought it was absolutely terrific to see him take charge of Everton for those four games. Of course, he was unbeaten in his time as Liverpool manager and over the course of uh, of, of playing time on the pitch. I know he lost on penalties but, but in terms of on the pitch across the ninety minutes, they, they they weren't defeated while he was he was in charge, and I thought he really captured the spirit of what Everton can be, he brought everyone together, and it just felt like if this was maybe ten years ago, he would have been appointed the manager. Now, now listen, not for a minute am I saying that three time Champions League winner Carlo Ancelotti isn't a better bet. He absolutely is, but perhaps that's a sign of where the Premier League is now. That a club like Everton can can attract someone like that, and I think. In the past, Ferguson would have got his opportunity, and it would have been really interesting to see how he would have done because he's such a—he seems like he's such a good motivator. And, and listen, let's be honest: who would want to go into a dressing room after uh, a poor performance where you haven't given your all and, and trying to explain that to a six-foot-four monster of a man who who would just cut you to the quick uh, with no questions asked, with a sheer look—that stare must be incredibly intimidating. So um, for his results, for the way he brought the club back together, for the way he's injected that uh, entire club with a a sense of purpose, my hero is Mr Duncan Ferguson.
1: Well said, well said, Johnny. I I agree with you on that. Um, I do love Big Dunk myself uh, for all his colourful characteristics. I think one of the biggest regrets that Arsenal uh, Everton Football Club may have in the past uh, two years when they employed the, uh, employed the wrong big in Big Sam and not Big Dunk, uh, because clearly Big Dunk was a much better uh, option for them. And, uh, and Sam ended up getting sacked by a survey of the fans, which would never have happened to the great man Ferguson. Uh, I also understand. Did,
0: did you, that- Ian, did you ever get, um, did you, were you ever on the end of a Duncan Ferguson stare down?
1: Um- not really, no. Because you know what, he avoided the media almost religiously um, when when he retired from playing. Never mind when he was playing. And one of the great things about him having that little interim spell in charge was the fact that he had to do press conferences before and after games, and you get to see that actually he's a very affable uh, big guy who is, um, you know, someone who is articulate and intelligent, who's very passionate about football, obviously. I love the way the ball boys were hugging him. I love the fact that he said there were no ball boys behind the goals because they all came running up to the, the, dun, the, uh, the dugout <laughs> to make sure they got a big dunk hug. Um, but yeah, he's a real he's he's a character. I, I think one of the, one of the great um, uh, well, sort of anecdotes is that um, there's no one at Finch's farm who doesn't know what, what the barrel is. And I think that says <laughs> everything. Because let's face it, there's not a lot of people outside of Glasgow who know what the bar the, the bar is, but Barland Finch's Farm everyone knows.
0: So um there you go. Um I'll the go to my
1: was... indeed. Bar
0: is what us Scottish people call bar jail. But we'll not Bar-Linny, go into that. The, the jail. The jail.
1: Uh my villain, this 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 uh of the past few days, uh, Johnny has gotta be well, I'd say both goalkeepers, De Gea for all the reasons we discussed earlier, but Spurs um, keeper Gazzaniga I mean, what was he doing uh, in that challenge? He's inside his own penalty box, so he could just basically go across the ball and take it into his chest. Instead he decides to perform some kind of Cantona-esque karate kick at the ball which he misses by about a yard takes out the player at the same time and then bizarrely doesn't get the penalty given against him in the first instance. But then VAR says, yeah, he has got to be a penalty because that was like some kind of ass- assault, uh, which if you did it in the street, the police would probably charge you f- with actual bodily harm. Uh, but then complaining that he had done nothing. I mean, honestly, the goalkeepers, the madness of them, it never, never ceases to amaze me. Um, so my, that's my villain of the week uh, for two counts. One for the fact that he made a challenge with his foot missed took the man out secondly for then complaining as if he'd done nothing wrong uh please a little bit of humility people just admit it it's ridiculous so yes those are the heroes and villains of the week and uh before you sign us off uh johnny i just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the transfer under podcast i'll leave you to do the sign off but would it
0: be the case and i certainly hope it is you might be rejoining us on friday Yes, well, that's uh, certainly a possibility. I may need to check my diary, Ian. Consult well, with Mrs McFarlane, who is a, a notoriously hard taskmaster. Let's just <laughs> hope she's not listening to this. Those <laughs> pies will eat themselves, themselves,
1: Johnny. Those pies will eat
0: themselves. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, we. I mean, obviously, bearing in mind that uh, Wednesday is indeed Christmas Day, and uh, the 1st of January is also Wednesday, there may be a little disruption to your normal transfer window schedule
1: I think our listeners will allow us, Johnny, they'll allow us a day off on Christmas Day, yes, well, you New got, Year's day.
0: You've, got, you've, got, you've got a lot on, on the 20, in the evening of the 24th and 25th You've got a lot of houses to get round I do uh, Rudolph is fed you know. I've got well, to make sure my ducks are in order <laughs> I thought you have got the order by now. To be fair. <laughs> okay, guys, we're going to call it a day at that. Um, obviously, the transfer window is always available on Twitter. If you want to get in touch with Ian, you can. It is extremely weird and probably explained about fifty times. So I'm not going to explain it now. Twitter handle of at SG, or if you prefer the Hungarian for old time's sake Garbozja Garbozja you can contact me at at Johnny R. McFarlane and of course the missing mensch of the transfer window Mr. Duncan Castles gone but not forgotten his Baldy Bonts will be back shortly we guarantee it you can get him at Duncan Castles until next time thanks for listening